contextually, it applies to this situation. I've never crashed a party, so I'm guessing <laughs> I'm using the right expression. If I'm not, then I'm sorry. But it is, it is so good to see you all again today. It's great to be with you all again today. Uh, I am as ecstatic and humbled and blown away as I was last week. And uh, just you guys are, honestly, it's family. I, I feel even though I, we're, I'm a long ways from Kansas City, it feels like Midtown. And, and uh, that's the, the bond that we have in Christ. And just the, the love and the warmth and the reception, the hospitality. I went to the, the Hall of Fame yesterday. <laughs> that's a... Wow, man, that was, I was like a kid on Christmas, you know, I, growing up my whole life being a sports fan and, and to actually be there was just, so I sent tons of pictures, my son is jealous, well, good, good, <laughs> he gets enough attention and love anyway, so it's, um, but no, thank you, uh, Josh and Vinny for spending the day with me like that, that was really, really enjoyable. And uh, so, so thankful. God is good. He's faithful, right? I mean, uh, a lot of things are happening in the world, as, as Kel uh, pointed out, and how God watches over and takes care of his own, and Jeff and Earl are good, and uh, the missionary and his family are good, and God is good. God is faithful. So we thank him for that. Uh, the, the, the medical team, oh, my goodness. Man, that is exciting. The baptisms, Wow. You know, I think I'd rather drink Clorox than be in a dead church. <laughs> right? Any, anybody with me on that? Right? I mean, man, this is, it's, God is at work in this church, and that's great. Where else would you want to be? And uh, so it's exciting. Lives are being touched and changed, and man, people are, are serving the Lord because they think enough of him to sacrifice their resources, precious resources, time, money, to go thousands of miles away to a people that they never met to glorify God by pouring into them. Wow. <laughs> that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And that's you, and I want to think that's us at Midtown, and I think that's one of the reasons why we are yoked together uh, in fellowship. So, again, it feels like home. That being said, let's pray, and uh, let's trust the Lord together for what he has for us in his word this morning. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the lives of people. Uh, the testimonies this morning were just beautiful. They, they were reflective of your greatness and your faithfulness and your love. And so, God, I, we thank you uh, for those salvations. We thank you, Lord, for their obedience of following you in baptism. And, Lord, we pray uh, that, God, they would just double down on discipleship and be 100% all in for you until their last breath. And so, God, we pray for them. We pray for, as we've heard, the, the missions medical team, God, thank you for their obedience and, and their willingness to, to just go wherever you would have them to go and do whatever you have them to do for your glory. God, that's so beautiful. Thank you. And, God, thank you for watching over Jeff and Erla and the missionary team that, that's there. And, uh, God, you're so faithful and so good. And, Lord, we just, we just want to, in this time, as we've done in the worship that was <laughs> extravagant and beautiful and wonderful, God, we want the, the, the teaching of your word to be 
that as well. We want it to be to your pleasure and your glory that your word would go forth and touch every heart, every mind in this room, including mine, that it would bring about what you desire in us for your glory. Amen. This morning we're talking about similes and metaphors. A simile is a figure of speech that shows the similarities between two different things. You'll often recognize similes by the words like like or as. So a good husband, so husbands, I'm talking to you, so this is a time for us to pay very close attention. So a husband would say to his wife, honey, you are as beautiful as a sunset on the beach. Now, I don't know if that's corny or not, but, but it is an example of a simile. So men, if you haven't used that one, don't use it today because I think she might connect it too easily. That, okay, yeah, that's not, those aren't your words. Those are Kenny's words. So maybe, you know, a month from now, you might leave her a little love note uh, on the dresser before you go to work that says something along those lines. Um, a metaphor, on the other hand, uses words and phrases that are usually applied to something else. So an example would be, it is as hot as a sauna out there, or I'm sorry, it's a sauna out there, right? So I said as, that's a simile, but metaphor, you would just say, it's a sauna outside. We know that a sauna is hot, but we're applying that to the weather. So if there's any teachers in the house right now, you're thinking, good, somebody paid attention. Okay. I did, but just so you know, I did have to get my dictionary out and do some research to make sure I was paying attention, so... But it it works nonetheless. But we use similes and metaphors daily to give visuals to our speech. We're painting a picture, so to speak. And this is precisely what God does throughout the book of Hosea. He's painting a picture of his people by giving us many similes and metaphors so that we can see very clearly what he saw. He does not want us to miss what he saw. In a sense, what God is doing is is he is making his case in divorce court. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, we see that where he says in Hosea, we're back in Hosea, chapter 4, verse 1, he uses a word to let us know that. He says, hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Controversy, it is a legal term, and it means to contest. So God has an issue with his people. And from here, what God is doing is is he moves forward to prove his case against his people by giving us as clear of a visual of them as possible throughout the book. Now, we can't see all of them this morning. We just don't have time. But the first one that we saw or we referenced last week was assembly in the same chapter in verse 16 where he says, For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. She refuses to move forward in a faithful relationship with God because, as we stated last week, she was bent to backsliding. 
She was determined to move away from God. She was determined to go backwards from God, not forward to him. What we want to do this morning is examine two similes and two metaphors that God uses to describe his people. And as we do that, this morning, what I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking myself to do is, would you just please open your heart, open your mind, and ask yourself this question. God, could you describe me that way? Could you attach any one of these similes, any one of these metaphors, could you right now, could you attach one of those to my life? And if the Holy Spirit says yes, then I would encourage you, I would challenge you, I would implore you to be courageously obedient and take God's grace and respond in a way that brings him glory. Don't be bashful. Don't procrastinate. Yeah, I, I see that that's me, but you know, I'll work on it next week, or I'll get to it another time. No, whatever it is that, because here's the thing, if you're like me, whenever God shows me something about my life that is inconsistent with his word, God will convict me and then show me very clearly how I need to respond, right then and there. And the worst thing that we can do is put that off. Listen, be not mistaken. Procrastination is disobedience. That's what it is because from God's perspective, once God has spoken or he's made clear what he wants us to know, then God would have us to respond immediately. And so be finding chapter 6 as we look at the first simile. And we're going to kind of work our way up to it. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. Now this clearly is pointing to a time of future, not present, repentance. Israel, in the book of Hosea, they were not a repentant people at that point, but they will be, and verse 1 alludes to that, or points to that. Verse 2, after two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, verse 1 obviously helps us to understand verse 2 because we know that the time when Israel will return to the Lord and be healed will be at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the phrase, third day, uh, that they will be raised up is where they will enter into the millennium under one head, Israel and Judah. We saw this last week in chapter 1 and verse 11, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, you see the, the theme of the book reemphasized here, that is the salvation and restoration of the nation of Israel. But that will clearly happen after the second day. And so second day here refers to prophetic days, if we could say it that way. It's been 2,000 years or two days since Christ resurrected from the dead, and it will be on the third day 
that Israel will be revived, resurrected, raised up. And again, this fits very uh, perfectly with, Isaiah, with Ezekiel's vision and Ezekiel 37 with the vision of the valley of the dry bones. Those dry bones are what? They're going to be revived. They're going to be raised up. And so we see that reinforced here. Verse 3, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. If we recall from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, rain was a sign of God's blessings and, and favor on Israel as a result of their obedience. And the absence of it was a sign or a signal of their disobedience. But in the millennium, rain will be plentiful. Joel chapter 2, verses 23 says this. It says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Zechariah 10, verse 1, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. And so we summarize those first three verses to get us to verse 4. Because that's where we're going to now see a drastic contrast between God and the people. Verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Again, we see God's heart in turmoil in the first couple of words of the verse, it reads very similar to what we saw last week in chapter 11 and verse 8 where he says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentance are kindled together. The word goodness that we see here in verse 4 is also translated in the Old Testament of our King James Bible as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, to name a few. And again, last week we saw from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 that there was no mercy in the land and there was no kindness in the land. Why? Because there was only killing and stealing and blood touching blood. The nation, the kingdom was overwritten with violence, not goodness. So God says their goodness is similar to a morning cloud or the early dew. That is, both pass away so very quickly. They do not last long. Let's say it this way. They're not faithful. You can't count on them to stick around very long. Israel is seen as a harlot throughout the book. Chapter 1 and verse 3, it is said of her that her whoredom was great. You know, when you think about a harlot, if there is a word that you would never associate 
with or attached to a harlot, it would be the word faithful. Because a harlot is faithful to no one except whatever brings them pleasure. That's it. God, on the other hand, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, has a plan, verses 1 through 3, to deliver them, restore them, and bless them forever. So the focus of this simile is faithfulness. This is what God is trying to show us, is that they're not faithful. They keep leaving me. The good that they do, it's only temporary. It's not lasting. It is said of God in Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God, who is eternally faithful, has never taken his eyes off of Israel. Never does and never will. That might appear to be somewhat of a contradiction given that God is declaring in the book, in chapter 1, verse 9, Lo Ami, not my people. While God has distanced himself from Israel, he has not done away with them altogether. And history shows that God has not slumbered nor slept on them. She has been hated. She is hated more than any other nation that I know of in history. She has been attacked and persecuted, but no one has been ever to wipe her off the map. Though they have tried and they continue to try. Hitler tried, and he made a dent in it. And so will the Antichrist. But why is it that she cannot be done away with? Why can't she be annihilated once and for all? Because God's faithfulness is not as a morning cloud or an early dew. God's faithfulness is not like that. That's why. But for some of his believers today, Sunday morning is the morning cloud, and it's the early dew. For two hours, they're all in with God. They're all in for God for two hours. But once the Sunday high wears off, He's an afterthought until next Sunday. Some are doing a little better than that in that they read their daily bread every morning, but the problem is the rest of their day does not reflect that they actually had their daily bread. It was just something for the morning. In those early years of marriage, Lori used to ask me, on somewhat of a regular basis, I come home and she'd say, she'd ask me if I thought about her. Did you think about me today? Uh, yeah, I thought about you today. I'm sure I did. You think about me today? You think about me today? Yeah, yeah, I sure did. I thought about you um, at lunch. I, I, let me see, let me count it, right? It's like, 
I better get this question right. (laughs) There was a point to the question. And the point was, she wanted me, she wanted to know that she still preoccupied my heart and my mind, even though we were not in the same physical space. Now, I am not likening God to a woman, but what I am saying is what I believe the Bible is saying. In Psalm 146, verse 2, it says this, While I live, will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God. Listen, while I have any being. While I have any being. We have being right now. And it's great. I mean, listen, the the worship here is phenomenal. Praise God for the men and women who lead this church so well every week in worship. It's fantastic. And so, yes, while we have our being in this physical space, yes, let's praise the Lord. But listen, we also have being at home. And we have being in the car and we have being at work. Brothers and sisters, please hear this, please. We make the statement of statements to God when the only time he hears us sing praise to him is in this room. That is a massive statement to God. Where God says, so the only time that you're willing to praise me, the only time that you will sing praise to me, the only time that you will articulate worship to me through the vehicle of of song is when you are in this room. After that, I don't get it. God says, you have being in those other contexts, but I only get it here. Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all day. Listen, Jeff Bartell is a sensational teacher. One of the best I've ever heard. I thank God for your podcast. I eat with you. It's good. Very good. But you can enjoy the book as much while sitting at your desk, while shuttling kids back and forth to soccer practice, if you think on these things. Is your faithfulness short-term or is it long-term? Is it lasting? We must move on. Chapter 7, verse 7. You know, preparing I, chapter 7, we could literally spend or have spent the three weeks in chapter 7 alone. It is, it's unbelievable as far as what we see here. 
There's a lot here. Verse 7. They are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. In this simile, Israel is likened to a hot oven. And the focus of this simile is fire. And what God is revealing to us about Israel here is that the fire that burns within her is not for him, but the fire that is burning in her is for everything that he deems detestable. God is saying, if only they burned for me like that. But they were hot as an oven. They were a nation on fire, much like the one we live in. And the first six verses of this chapter affirms this. Verse 4 tells us they are all adulterers. But this simile comes into much clearer view when we consider what God said in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And in verse 12 it says, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 13. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. The burnt offering pictured Christ offering himself fully to God for the sins of mankind. But it also represented the total giving of self by the worshiper of God. So the offering of Christ is ever before God. This is one of the reasons that we observe the Lord's Supper. And let me say this, with respect to fire, the emphasis, the priority that you and I place on that speaks volume about our fire. A Christian who is indifferent about the Lord's Supper that we are to proclaim <laughs> it's not good. And good churches just like this for whatever reason we put aside time and we sanctify, we set apart time to observe the Lord's Supper And I don't know about here, but in many churches, if it's not during this time, there are seats everywhere. And as it relates to us today as believers, the fire that should never go out is the fire that burns within us to present our bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, that is the fire that should never go out. Ever. Folks, I don't know how to say it any more simple than this. 
as far as God is concerned, there should be only one overriding, burning passion in your life, and that is total, absolute devotion to him. That's it. That is the consuming passion of my life. It is my greatest pursuit. It is my largest preoccupation. It is the fire, the burning of my soul. God, I am yours today. I am yours in five minutes. I am yours forever. Whatever you want from my life, you got it. God, here is a blank check to my life. You got it. You got it. God, I'm not playing with this. I'm not playing with church. I'm not playing with this thing called Christianity. Here's a blank sheet of paper to my life. Whatever you put on that paper, you got it. You know, one of the things that hurts us in America as believers is we place such a high premium on democracy. And I get it from the government. I get it from the... I get it, I get it, I get it. I I get all that. But here's that becomes a problem if we're not careful. When we think that we have a voice with God. Where, well, I've got to be heard too, God. Well, God, I've got to weigh in. God, I've got to put in my vote. There's only one voice. Bible tells us, Proverbs 19.21, what is it? There are many devices in the heart of a man, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. What I think, what I feel, what I want means nothing. But when we see his people in chapter 7 of Hosea, We do see a fire that is burning, that has not been put out. The problem, however, is that it's not burning with a total devotion to God. Someone is reported to have asked a concert violinist in New York's Carnegie Hall how she became so skilled. She said that it was by planned neglect. She planned to neglect anything that was not related to her goal. There's a lesson there for us. As we ought to neglect anyone or anything that would compete or interfere with our full devotion to God. And listen... God isn't calling us to manage that, that thing or that person. No, God, Colossians 3, 5, is calling us to mortify it. Destroy it. A question that a friend of mine often asks, and every time I hear him say it, it squeezes my heart, but it goes like this. What has Satan done for you that makes you serve him so well? Just can't let it go. 
Just can't let them go. It's quenching my fire for God, but I, I just can't let that go. My passion for it, my passion for them is so much greater than it is for God. Verse 8, chapter 7. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. In this metaphor, Ephraim is compared to a cake not turned. The focus of this metaphor is fruit. If I can say my wife can really handle herself in the kitchen around some pancakes. She is a gifted pancake maker. She is really good. Aunt Jemima is not my aunt. I try. I really try. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Thank you. I know it's corny, but... So this is what... You, you guys are great. See, when I'm at Midtown, I tell a joke, all I get is... <laughs> Sam gets up, and he says something, and man, they're rolling on the floor there in stitches, and I try, and I get no love. <laughs> you guys are so loving. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I, I don't know what she does, but they're so special. Like, she has this... Um, they have this ring around them, like this crispy ring. It's just so good. But they're soft and fluffy in the middle, and like me and the kids are just like, we'll have, we'll have, we'll have it for dinner sometimes, right? Just so good. And sometimes she'll, if, I, if I've been really good, <laughs> she'll take bananas and chocolate chips and put it, oh, forget about it. Um, but there's something I noticed that she does when she makes pancakes, right? She does the batter and all that she does, and then she, she pours them on the griddle. And then one side cooks, then she takes the spatula, and then she flips the other, to the other side. It's kind of important, right? I mean, if you don't flip the pancake, what use is it? In the event that she gets preoccupied with her multitasking, which... Lori does, and I mean, women, I'm sorry, you guys are amazing. Like, I mean, Lori can be making pancakes, fixing the kids' lunch, putting dishes in the dishwasher. I mean, it's crazy. I, I mean, I, my kids come to me, and they're both talking at the same time. It's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, hang on, hang on. One the, right? I, I can't. I, I get a traffic jam, man. It's like, hey, I, listen, I can't do that. Lori can have a conversation with both of them and then do five other. It's crazy. But in the event that one side cooks too long, then it is rendered useless and discarded to the garbage. So when God says that Ephraim is a cake not turn. Here's what he's saying. They are useless to me. 
They're useless. Would you look very quickly at chapter 8 and verse 8? And this is the bottom line for God. Chapter 8, verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles, listen, as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. Okay, very quickly. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, very quickly. A vessel wherein is no pleasure. Revelation 4 and verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So what is the purpose of life? The purpose of your life and my life is to bring pleasure to God. The reason that you have breath in your lungs right now is for that. So guess what? If your life is a vessel where there is no pleasure, what's the point? Because that is the point. That's why we're here. Now, let's justify it a little further. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea 10, verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. There's a metaphor. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Here's what we have to understand. The name Ephraim means doubly fruitful. That's what it means. How is it, according to John 15, 8, How is it that God is glorified? That we bear much fruit. So Ephraim was to be, should have been, doubly fruitful for God. They were to be a vessel of pleasure. Instead, Ephraim was doubly fruitful and idolatry. Do you know why God hates idolatry? I'm sure we can all 
give a lot of good answers, and they would all be good and right. I'm not saying mine is superior to anyone else's. But I believe the reason that God hates idolatry so much is because at the highest level, the goal of idolatry is to erase him. It's to erase him. Get out. You are not God here. I am. This is why we say when it comes to dealing with sin, we're not going to take the approach that Saul took in 1 Samuel 15. We're not looking to manage the situation as best as we can. No, what we want to do is we want to take an explosive approach and destroy it. Kill it. Why? Because whatever this thing is or whoever this thing is, I'm telling you, their intentions are not good. Their intention or its intention is to erase God. Why? Because no man can serve two masters. This is why we can't play with sin. How did that happen to Ephraim, and why does it happen? The answer is found in chapter 10 and in verse 2, and also back in chapter 7, which we'll go to in just a minute. But their heart is divided. They were halting between two opinions. 1 Kings 18, 21 James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So they were divided in heart. They were double in mind, which meant that they were not totally devoted to God. And back in chapter 7, we see what fueled this and what fuels it. Back in chapter 7, and verse 8, we saw that Ephraim is a cake not turned. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Back in 2 Kings 15 through 17, we see the mixing, or the alliances with the nations. And when we mix ourselves with the people of this world, we become unaware of what's actually happening to us. Look at verse 9. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. He knoweth it not. He knoweth it not. Since 1900, almost 30 million tons of asbestos material has been used in this country for insulation. And according to a Harvard Medical School report, more than 500,000 Americans will die from the airborne particles of asbestos. The report stated that just because there doesn't appear to be an immediate problem, 
the public must not be fooled. See, here's the problem. By the time it is discovered that you have a problem due to asbestos, it is too late and there is no cure. The symptoms may not show up for 30 years or more. Man, I'm in sin. I'm having a great time. (laughs) I can always get right with God tomorrow. I can always get right with God next month, next week. I mean, man, I'm just having the time of my life with sin. And you know what? Yeah, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I I still go to church most of the time, and I I still put a little money in the plan to tip God. And, and, you know, when somebody gets married, I go. And, you know, I I, I read my Bible. But you know what, man? When, (laughs) when, When the flesh calls, it calls. And people do that many years until you go to the doctor and there's blood work. And then there's a phone call. We need to come in, we need to talk. I am so sorry to tell you this, but you have fill in the blank. God says, here's the bill. Let me tell you something about sin. The price tag always exceeds the pleasure of it. The price tag always exceeds the pleasure. Make no mistake about it. You see, once you mix with the world, you can get so far from God without even knowing it or even knowing what's happened or it's happening to you. And one of the ways that you can always tell that this has happened or is happening to someone is by what God says in chapter 8 and in verse 12. When I pray to God, I beg God for you, I beg God for me that this could never be said about me or about you. Verse 12. This blows my mind. I have written to him, this Ephraim, the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. Did you know that? You can get so far from God for so long, you can mix yourself with the people of this world where you actually get to the place where you think God is completely out of his mind with respect to what he's calling you to do. I've sat across the table from people, I sit across the table from people who absolutely think that God's word is ridiculous. 
What do you mean? Do you really expect me to move out from my boyfriend? Do you really expect me to move out from my girlfriend? Do you really expect me to stop doing this? Do you really expect me to stop doing that? Are you crazy? God's word is strange. I can't believe you would say that to me. Oh, I, I didn't say it. <laughs> I'm just saying what's been said. But you're going to actually get to the place where God's word is counted as a strange thing to you. Ultimately, this is what we have to understand regarding the cake not turned. God is so zealous about fruit that brings him glory that if our lives are not producing it, he has no use of us. If you're not living to the purpose that I have created you for, we saw that, then what's the use? What's your use? Would you consider John 15, verse 6? If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Okay, now this passage, unfortunately, is often used to or as a proof text as to why someone can lose their salvation, and that's so unfortunate because that's not what it's saying at all. Because it says, and men, not God, gather them and cast them into the fire. We're not talking about a believer losing their salvation. What we are talking about is we're talking about a believer who is a cake not turned and has therefore been determined by God to be useless. That's what we're talking about. And what God is saying is, in John 15, if you're not abiding in me, if you're not abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you cannot bear fruit, and if you're not bearing fruit, that means I love you. I'm telling you, this is, this is, this is going to hurt. Especially in 2016 where you go to church and everybody tells you how wonderful you are and they stroke you and make you feel like a million bucks. But God says, if you belong to me and you're not abiding in my son, which means you're not being fruitful, Ephraim, then you are good for nothing. Stings, doesn't it? That's exactly what he's saying. It's hard to say, and it's hard to swallow. But it is true nonetheless. What is your fruit testimony before God? Is it fruit unto yourself? Like we saw in chapter 10? Is it fruit unto God? 
Are you faithful today? Is your faithfulness to God lasting? Or is it as the morning cloud and the early dew? It's just for right now. But when this is over, it's over with God. Until next week. How about the fire of your heart, your soul this morning? What is it burning for? You sang so great today. Will you sing tomorrow? Will you sing Tuesday? Will you sing on Wednesday? Will you be all in for God? Can we pray? Lord, we do thank you for your word this morning. God, as we examine these similes and metaphors, God, we did so this morning, taking the position of examining our hearts, asking ourselves, God, is that me? And so, Lord, if you have shown us anything that you could say to us, yeah, that's you, then, God, right now, you are giving us some space to deal with that with you right now, not tomorrow, not next week, but right now. So, God, let us make that the most important thing that we deal with or think about. Lunch is not going anywhere. The rest of the day will be there, but nothing is more important than responding to you right now. Lord, in a crowd this size, there may be some who what they're hearing from you is it starts with them giving themselves to you. God, you gave yourself to them in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and died for their sins and was buried and rose again on the third day so that they could have eternal life. And so, God, if for that person or those individuals, there's nothing more significant to think about than that. So however you are dealing with us right now, God, help us to respond for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.